You're listening to A Sure Hope with Pastor Dave Shank of Calvary Chapel, Cape May in Cape May, New Jersey. Join us as Pastor Dave teaches verse by verse through God's Word. try to tell those people who are in ministry with me to ascribe to this. It's a period of rest, period of rest. And it's interesting that Jesus told his disciples to come aside and rest. If you read the original King James, it says, come apart. It says, come apart. In other words, come apart from all the work, come apart from all the crowd and rest. And I love it what uh, John Corson said about this. He said, if we don't come apart, we'll fall apart. We don't take time to come apart will fall apart. Our need for rest is by design. From the very beginning, even before sin entered our world and began its destructive course, God built a Sabbath into the pattern of life. As Pastor Dave will remind you in today's message, if you push yourself to go without that time, you'll find yourself broken and burnt out before long. Now, here's Pastor Dave in the book of John chapter 6 as he begins his message, Jesus Feeds 5,000. You are Gospel of John, chapter 6, verse 1. After these things, Jesus went over the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. Then a great multitude followed him because they saw his signs, which he performed on those who were diseased. And Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat with his disciples. Now the Passover, a feast of the Jews, was near. Then Jesus lifted up his eyes, and seeing a great multitude coming toward him, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread that these may eat? But this he said to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them, that every one of them may have a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a lad here who has five barley loaves and two small fish. But what are they among so many? Then Jesus said, make the people sit down. And now there was much grass in the place. So the men sat down in number about 5,000. And Jesus took the loaves. And when he had given thanks, he distributed them to the disciples and the disciples to those sitting down and likewise of the fish as much as they wanted. So when they had were filled... He said to his disciples, gather up the fragments that remain so that nothing is lost. Therefore, they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with the fragments of five barley loaves, which were left over by those who had eaten. Then those, when, then those men, when they had seen the sign that Jesus did, said, this is truly the prophet who has come into the world. So we start a new chapter, chapter 6 in the Gospel of John. We come to an extremely familiar story. An extremely familiar story, the feeding of the 5,000. Take caution, my brothers and sisters. Take caution. Because when you come to a story that is so familiar as the feeding of the 5,000, 
When you come to a story that you've probably have read many times in your studies, that you probably have heard many sermons on, take caution, my brothers and sisters, that you don't shut out the Holy Spirit and think nothing of it and say to yourself, I've heard this before. God's word is new every morning. God's word is pure. And God has something to say to each of you today through these scriptures, if you're willing to listen. Remember what Jesus said to the layman in Bethesda. Are you willing? What do you want me to do? Remember what he said last week. They wouldn't come to me because they weren't willing. So as we sit before the Lord this morning and as we go into these scriptures, have a willing heart to learn something today that maybe you didn't know before. And if you learn things that you already know, let that reinforce what you know. Let that keep you strong and keep you strengthened in the Lord our God and in his word to know that his word never returns void. So we have to be careful when we come to, when we come to scriptures because familiarity can be a detriment. Familiarity can be a detriment as we study God's word. We tend to gloss it over, read real fast, or not study it like we should. We don't want to miss anything that the Lord might teach us. We want to be ready to receive. The feeding of the 5,000 in John 6 was a miracle of such great magnitude that it appears in all four Gospels. It appears in all four Gospels. John begins his account with, after these things. After these things. Now, one could assume John means the controversy that Jesus had with the Pharisees that we spent so much time on that we came through John 5. And you, you would be sort of okay. But according to the harmony of the Gospels, many things happened since that controversy and this feeding of the 5,000. See, you have to remember, John the Apostle is very, very selective in his material that he's putting in his Gospel. He is extremely selective because he has a specific purpose. You know the purpose. We've gone over it time and time again, but it's worth repeating. In chapter 20, verse 30. And 31, and truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. Key, not written in this book. But these things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. John had a specific purpose for writing. So he's selective in the things that he chooses to put in his account. I'm sure John read the other accounts. I'm sure John read all the other accounts and he felt the Holy Spirit moving him to put in here these things that would draw people to Jesus Christ as the Messiah, as the Son of God. So John doesn't record all the events of Jesus' life. In fact, he says, if I did, there wouldn't be books to hold them. But he is very selective. So, but when you read through the harmony of the Gospels, we find that between the healing of the lame man on the Sabbath and now in the feeding of the 5,000, many events took place. In fact, you can find those events in Luke 6, all the way to Luke 9. In Mark 3, all the way to Luke 6, I mean Mark 6, excuse me. Luke 6 to 9 and Mark 3 to 6. It's believed that during this time, Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7, 5 to 7. And he gave the parables of the kingdom in Matthew 13. And now it says, ever since the events, after these things, a multitude was following Jesus. 
A multitude has seen the miracles. A multitude has heard his words. A multitude are attracted him for many, 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 many different, lists, different reasons. They were amazed at the things that he did. But after all this activity, Jesus was tired. Jesus was tired. He really was looking for some rest. So he sought to get away from the crowd, but the crowd wouldn't let him. The crowd pressed into him. The crowd pressed forward to him, and he tried to get away. In fact, in Mark's account, in Mark 6, specifically in 31, it says, And he said to them, Come aside by yourselves to a deserted place and rest a while. For there were many coming and going, and they did not even have time to eat. There were so many people coming to the apostles and to Jesus, they never had time to sit down and have a meal. So Jesus says, come aside, come aside. See, he's talking to them because the disciples in Mark 6 just got back from being sent out and doing many, many things. And they've come back, and they're tired, they're worn out. Ministry is difficult. Ministry can be tough. And when they return, Jesus knew they needed a rest. Jesus knew they needed a rest. See, when it came time to work, Jesus was all work. But when it came time to rest, he knew what time it was. Nobody knew the importance of work more than Jesus did. Because when we get to, God, to John 9, he's going to say, let's turn there for a minute. He's going to say this in verse 4. I must work the works of him who sent me while it's day. The night is coming when no one can work. So Jesus knew the importance of work also knew the importance of rest. And what's being modeled here for us is something that I tried to ascribe to, that I try to tell those people who are in ministry with me to ascribe to this. It's a period of rest, period of rest. And it's interesting that Jesus told his disciples to come aside and rest. If you read the original King James, it says, come apart. It says, come apart. In other words, come apart from all the work, come apart from all the crowd and rest. And I love it, what uh, John Corson said about this. He said, if we don't come apart, we'll fall apart. If we don't take time to come apart, we'll fall apart. And this is for anyone who's serving in ministry, even those of you who do street witnessing or do any type of ministry whatsoever. There's an ebb and flow in ministry. There's times of great service. And then there's times of quiet and solitude. There's times of fast-paced action. Just ask the guys when I bring out my calendar. But then there's also times of prayer and contemplation. Prayer, and, and they have to be balanced. We all need rest. I believe we all need a weekly rest, a Sabbath, if you will. It's biblical that we take a weekly rest from our activity. But we also need a daily rest, a time of quiet contemplation and prayer sitting before our Lord. Who's my example? Jesus Christ. Every morning, he got up and went off alone to be with the Father, prayed, heard from the Father, and what, this do, what did this do? It got him ready for the day. It got him strengthened for what was about to take place. We need to do the same thing. And morning works best. And I've said before, for me, if I don't get up and do that in the morning, I know that I'm going to have a hard time fitting it in later in the day. Because the day crushes in. Things happen, all that kind of stuff, and I don't seem to do the things I want to do. Sounds like Paul. So we get recharged this way. We get strengthened this way for the work of the ministry. We get renewed in our strength. We're ready to take on that which the Lord would have us do. So John begins his account of this event in chapter 6. 
He says, after these things, verse 1, Jesus went over to the Sea of Galilee, which is in the Sea of Tiberias. Then a great multitude followed him because they saw his signs, which he performed on those who were diseased. And Jesus went up to the mountain, and there he sat with his disciples. Now the Passover, a feast of the Jews, was at hand. So Jesus and his disciples go up to a mountain. But a great multitude followed after him. A great multitude. We're going to find out later that it was 5,000 men. We don't know how many women and children were following. It was 5,000 men. I'm sure they were accompanied by their wives and children. I'm sure that there were many, many more than that. So they go up to the mountain. And even though Jesus and the disciples went up to the mountain, the crowd followed them up there. They had seen the miracles. They saw the healings. They saw demons being casted out, and they wanted more. They were curious for a look at this guy who was doing this thing. What were they seeking? What were they actually seeking? Well, I think some of them were actually seeking a free meal. I think some of them were actually seeking what they could get from Jesus, a healing. They weren't seeking him spiritually, so to speak. Not all of them. Some of them might have been. But most of them were seeking him for what they could get out of him. Maybe some of them thought he was a magician by what he did, and they, and they wanted to see and be entertained. Maybe some of them thought he was a doctor, and they, he knew that he could assist them with their infirmities. But I do believe that some of them thought him to be the Messiah. I do believe that some of them actually thought him to be the Messiah, and they wanted a closer look at this man. They wanted a closer look at him. They were looking to him for him, not for what he could do. And that's extremely important. Matthew Henry said this, quote, Christ's miracles drew many after him that were not effectively drawn to him. In other words, many people sought him for the signs and wonders that he could do. But how many people sought him for the spiritual birth that he wanted to give them? How many people sought him for the spirituality that they needed? I think some of them experienced crowd mentality. Why are all those people following over there? Something must be going on. I think I'll go take a look. Go down the street corner and start going. Pretty soon you'll have a crowd around you going. You look on TV and you see a bunch of clowns running down the street, breaking windows and throwing things. And all of a sudden, they're joined by another bunch of clowns and they're doing the same thing. Crowd mentality. Crowd mentality. Look, all those people followed after him. He must know something or they must know something that I don't. We need to follow after him and find out. Crowd mentality. Why are these people going after this man? People are attracted to Jesus for various reasons. Some of them are legitimate. But sadly, some of them are not legitimate. Some of them are not legitimate. Many try to manipulate the Lord for their personal agenda. They only want something from him. They only want to get something from him. Many follow the Lord to get something from other people. They follow the Lord to get something from others. Many pretend to be following hard after Jesus, but they have an ulterior motive. They have an ulterior motive. And it's interesting that here, John records the fact that the Passover was near. So there was a great multitude already there. There was a great multitude on their way to Jerusalem. Great multitude coming into the city. Great multitude being in that area because it was Passover. So why were they there? Some of them were just there out of obligation, out of tradition. Because it was Passover. They were required to go to Jerusalem for the Passover. So they were there. 
I like what this one commentator said. He said, quote, Passover is associated with the exodus and God's sustenance of Israel in the wilderness. Jesus will soon sustain this multitude in their small wilderness with bread from heaven, both literally and spiritually. As we continue in chapter 6, you'll see what he's talking about. So we go to verse 5a, and it says, Then Jesus lifted up his eyes. Jesus looked out. He saw faces coming at him. And in Mark's account, it says he was moved with compassion. Mark said he was moved with compassion. We know our God to be a compassionate God, a loving God who has feelings towards us that you can't even count. They, they are outnumbered by the sands of the sea. We can't count God's feelings towards us. But each face he looked into, he saw a need. He saw hunger. He maybe saw hurt. People coming to him. Jesus looks in your face and he sees what you're going through. And he has compassion on you. He has compassion on the hurting. He has compassion on the lonely. He has compassion on those who are burdened and heavy. He has compassion on us. His compassion is never ending. He wants us to come to him. Come to him freely. Give him our burden and take his burden on us. Because his yoke is easy and his burden is light. Follow me, he said. He had compassion. See, Jesus was a totally others-centered person. He was a totally others-person-centered. He cared more about the needs of everyone else than he cared about his own needs. Interesting that the great apostle Paul, when he was writing to the church at Philippi, says basically this same thing. Basically, he says the same thing what Jesus is looking about here. He says this in chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Therefore, if there are any consolation in Christ, if any comfort in love, any fellowship of the Spirit, if any reflection, affection of mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord and one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for your own interest, but also for the interest of other. Paul writes this to the Philippians. He was telling them to be unified, be like-minded, be of one accord, in love, having the same love. And then Paul says, okay, this is how you do it. Then he gives them basically four steps. The first step says, let nothing be done with selfish ambition. What are your motives for doing anything? What are the motives for the things you do? Why do you do the things you do? Is there selfish ambition? Let nothing be done in selfish ambition. In the flesh, we are motivated by selfish ambition. We want people to recognize what we've done so we can be puffed up. And people can say, yeah, good job, yeah. It's conceit. It's selfish ambition. Much of what we do is not out of love. Not out of love. And when we get to heaven, he's going to show us all the things we've done. Remember when you did that? <laughs> Pal, you did that for you, not for me. Poof, burn up, wood, hay, and stubble, gone. Often out of our own desire for advancement or promotion, we do things, which is selfish ambition. He said the second step is let nothing be done in conceit. And conceit is thinking highly of yourself, more highly than it is. It's having an excessive self-interest or an excessive preoccupation with yourself. It really could be translated having an empty glory. Having an empty glory. When we live with the feeling that we're so able and we are so talented, guess what? You're actually out of the will of God. You're actually out of the will of God when you think you are it. 
When you are the best and you've got it all made. See, when you're doing this, you're working against the unity that Paul's talking about here. The unity of love. The unity of having the same mind. And that mind is Christ Jesus, he says. Having that mind, you're working out. The third step is in loneliness of mind, let us esteem others better than ourselves. This is completely contradictory to the world. Esteem others better than me? You mean I'm supposed to be number two? Wait a minute. No, he says esteem others better than yourself. Lowliness of mind is about the least attractive thing that the world looks at. To esteem others better than yourself, it goes directly against any cultures. I've been in education for, I was in education for over 37 years, and they never taught this in self-esteem classes. Trust me. They never taught this type of thing. Oh, think lowly of yourself. What? goes totally against the world. But as we esteem others better than ourselves, naturally have a concern for their needs. Their needs become very important. Their needs become very important. Their concerns become very important. And this outward thinking, this outward mentality leads to unity. It leads to unity within the body. If I consider you above me and you consider me above you, a marvelous thing happens. We have a community where everyone is looked up to. Everyone is looked up to. Nobody's looked down. Oh, it's that person. Nobody's looked down on. Everybody's looked up to. Everybody has esteemed and loved, just like Christ loved us. And then Paul completes the thought by saying, let each of you look out not only for his own interest, but also the interests of others. We're to put away selfish ambitions. We're to put away our conceit. We're to put away our, our tendencies to be high-minded and self-absorbed. And we will then naturally have a concern for others. Now, Paul's not saying, stop worrying about yourself. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying, don't look out for your own interests. He's saying, don't look out only for your own interests. Don't look out only for yourself. After me, you're first. No, that's not the way it's supposed to go. See, this is the way Christ lived. And Christ is always our example. He is always our example. Mark tells us that Jesus looked out. He lifted up his head and he looked out and he had compassion on them for he saw them without a, sh a sheep without a shepherd. Sheep without a shepherd. What do sheep without a shepherd do? Well, first of all, they don't eat. They don't eat. They wander. They go off the beaten path, right? They can't fend for themselves because sheep are really not so bright. Sorry. Sheep aren't really the brightest creatures in the entire world. If they're all walking down the road and one of them starts to jump off a cliff, guess what? Hey, that looks like a good idea. Come on. They all go off the cliff. It's the original. If one jumped off the cliff, would you do too? All the sheep would go, yeah, we'll do it. Sheep without a shepherd wander. They get off the beaten path. We had a great lesson on the path the other day. A great lesson on staying on the path of Christ. Great lesson out of Proverbs. They get off the path. Jesus looked at them. He, he, he saw them wandering. He saw them straying. He saw them tied up in a religious box of Judaism that they couldn't get out of. He looked at them as sheep without a shepherd. Moved with compassion when he sees the people. Jesus is looking at you today and he's moved with compassion for you. He's moved with compassion because of his great love for you. He's moved with compassion. It was that compassion, it was that love that drove him to a cross, that placed him on that cross to die for you, to actually bleed and die for you. 
Jesus knew the pressing demands of their heart. He knew what was going on. They needed a shepherd. They needed someone who was going to care for them, nurture them, feed them, not only physically, but they are in desperate need of spiritual food. They were in desperate need of spiritual food. You are The book of John covers Jesus' life and ministry here on earth, but the book begins long before Jesus was born in a manger. He existed with God the Father from the start. So many other religions have some figure they look to or commemorate, but none of those mere men accomplished what Jesus did. Jesus came as a man and died, but then he came back to life because he's God. No other man can claim that remarkable feat. Only God could do this, and therefore, the only true one to follow is Jesus. What might be holding you back today in believing all that God says he is and does? If you have some questions you'd like answered, we'd be happy to try and answer these questions or pray with you about what's weighing on your heart. Please don't hesitate to call us at 609-884-5821. Again, that number is 609 609- 884-5821. Keep looking to scripture for answers and know that we care about the journey you're on. We're so glad you tuned in to A Sure Hope today. You can hear more messages like this one from Pastor Dave at our website. Just click on the messages tab when you visit assurehoperadio.com. We'd love to meet you too. Find out how you can join us for worship at Calvary Chapel Cape May by visiting assurehoperadio.com. You'll also find us on Facebook and YouTube. Links for both are at assurehoperadio.com. There's more to learn from the book of John next time, so be sure to join us again on another edition of A Sure Hope.